helpful is to know is that, that, that John wrote the book of Revelation to a fearful, anxious, worried church. Things had not been going very well for the early church. Uh, um, they had put their trust in Jesus, but then Jesus died. <laughs> and uh, their lives uh, had become pretty bad. Yes, Jesus had risen again and, and he had left, but, but it was hard for, for people to understand sometimes how, how their, their future was going to unfold without Jesus present with them. You see, their, their city, which was the, the kind of the heart of their religion, the city of Jerusalem, had been destroyed. They were under the, uh, the reign of an emperor by the name of Domitian, and this guy hated Christians, and so he was... Uh, he was launching a campaign of persecution against them. Uh, they were finding themselves pressed to kind of conform to society and society's views on a whole host of issues. They were being pushed to go sacrifice at pagan temples. They were being pushed to join some of the, uh, the guilds and the associations in the business community and they were just sort of getting hammered for their faith as they tried to to stand up to to this pressure they were being hammered for it non-christians were saying to them like what's your faith about anyway i mean it doesn't seem to be working for you and things were not going very well and they were wondering to themselves like what's what's the end game here where's this going and so john writes the book of Revelation to them to assure them, to assure them that, look, things are not always as they seem. It may look like this on the surface, but underneath, it's not the chaos that you think you see. In fact, God is in control, and, and every part of what you're experiencing right now is part of his control, and the outcome is actually certain, certain and therefore you can trust in that and rest in that. And the reason was because Jesus was king. He reigned. We talked about the offices of Christ last week, right? Prophet, priest, and king. And we looked at prophet, we looked at priest, and I said we're going to look at king today. And that's what we're going to consider together for a few minutes here in this passage. The kingship of Jesus Christ. The kingship of Jesus Christ in Revelation 5. And we're going to see three things. We're going to talk, or we're going to talk about the control of history, the hero of history, and the end of history. It's all right here, so let's have a look. First of all, the control of history. What's going on in this vision that John has? So he says in verse 1, he says, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. What's going on here? Much like Isaiah did in Isaiah chapter 6, John gets a vision of the throne room of God. And he sees God. We don't know what God looks like in this vision. But he sees God on the throne. And he sees God holding this scroll. Now, to be on the throne, of course, is a picture of absolute authority. That's the one who reigns. That's the one who's in control. Now, what's the deal with the scroll? Well, the scroll scholars tell us, represents the plot, the story of history, and particularly redemptive history. So God, Scripture teaches us, God had placed a plan before even the creation of the world in which he was going, through time, he was going to unfold the redemption of history, the salvation of everything, including God's people. And that scroll represented that story. 
Now, what this means is that history, according to the Bible, is two things. Well, it's many things, but it's these two things for sure. It's linear and it's meaningful. It's linear and it's meaningful. Why do I point that out? Well, because throughout history, in different cultures, people have tried to understand what is history and what is time. And so you have the Eastern view of history and time that says, you know, time is cyclical and history is cyclical. So things kind of happen like you live your life and then you die and then you're reincarnated and you live your life and then you die and you're reincarnated. And the story gets repeated over and over again on an individual scale and on a sort of grand geopolitical scale with no end in sight. And you're sort of, sort of a participant in that, that, that cycle. Then you have... Um, sort of the evolutionary understanding of history that says, well, history is evolving, meaning history is, is developing, and it's, it doesn't necessarily have a goal to it. It's not really going anywhere in particular, but it is going from, let's say, simplicity to complexity. And that can be positive. There are positive evolutionary uh, uh, um, historians, and then there, it can be negative. There are negative, you know, evolutionary historians who say, yeah, it's getting more complex, but it's getting worse all the time. And then you have sort of the fatalism of a deterministic view of history that says, well, history is really just a machine. And you and I are cogs in the machine. All in all, you're just another brick in the wall. And your, part, your history is sort of fatalistically predetermined. Those are kind of the, the major views. And then you have the Christian view. And the Christian view says, no, 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 no. History is not like that. History, in fact, is a story written by God that is moving towards a conclusion, and that conclusion can actually be known. And therefore, you have a part to play in the story. I have a part to play in the story. Nations have a part to play in the story. Everybody has a part to play in the story. And that conclusion is known by God and can be known by us. So we're not stuck in a continuous cycle of reboots. We're not stuck in some kind of random chaos, nor are we stuck as sort of puppets in a predetermined kind of uh, 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 matrix. Okay? Now, I know some of you are thinking... All right, there's a story that God's written. I'm part of the story. I know the story's concluded. How in the world am I actually a free participant in that story? What about my will, my free will? What about my decisions? Are, are, how is this different from determinism? Well, I want you to know, first of all, it's not a problem just for you. It's, it's a problem for all people, whether you're a believer, whether you're a religious person or not. This question of the relationship between uh, determinism and free will has been debated by philosophers and scholars of all kinds of stripes right down through the ages, okay? So many of you have probably heard of B.F. Skinner. Uh, B.F. Skinner was a psychologist who said that, you know, conditioning, everybody is conditioned, and therefore what you think are your free actions are just actually the conditioned responses that you make to things, right? So um, if uh, your parents, they ring a bell every time supper is on, okay? then you are hungry and your mouth starts watering because you're thinking about supper. 
But then what happens if mom decides to ring a bell at, you know, eight o'clock at night? She just rings a bell and you go, wait a minute, I, my, mouth is, my, my, my mouth is starting to water because I heard the bell. You've been conditioned to simply respond to bells by, with your mouth watering. Do you understand what I'm talking about now? All right, see? So easy. B.S. Skinner is really easy to understand. Now, that's not, I mean, I'm simplifying B.S. Skinner because he got that from Pavlov, so don't give me a hard time. I'm just trying to simplify things for us here. I, I watched a, a, an interesting uh, interview recently with Richard Dawkins. Some of you maybe have heard of him. And he basically argues that we are so, so much a product of evolution that everything is absolutely predetermined. So the chemicals that are firing in your brain that are simply uh, uh, programmed to make sure that you do whatever you can to pass on your DNA and, and continue uh, life in, in your, your genetic script down to the next generation just controls everything that you say. And so you, you have in the secular world all kinds of people arguing that, that we are determined, that, that we, aren't, we don't have free will. Meanwhile, of course, you have people that argue that we absolutely do have free will. But here's the difference between all of that and Christianity. In every other version of this debate, the question is, either there's free will or there's determinism. And in Christianity, it's never either or. It's both and. See, the Bible says that God has created the universe according to a linear historical story, a plot line that you and I participate in. And your free actions are the things that drive the story in relation to God's active writing of the story. And that may sound really weird to you, but think of it this way. When you read Macbeth, and you read that Duncan kills Macbeth, sorry, spoiler alert, he does, when you read that Duncan kills Macbeth in the play Macbeth, do you blame Shakespeare? Or do you say, Macbeth, why did you listen to your wife? And why did you plot this? And why did you, why did you become an idol to power and, and control so that you would be driven to do such a terrible thing and murder King Duncan? That's what you say. You don't go, you don't go to Shakespeare and say, well, you know, why did you write things this way? Now, it doesn't solve all the questions, but it helps you understand the relationship. History is linear, and it has a conclusion. It, it's going somewhere, and it is because of the control of God. Now, there's a problem with this, of course. This story that God has written, it needs a hero. In verses 2 through 5... John says that, that the angel proclaims in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. And so he wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Now, what he's talking about here is this. The story needs a hero. You see, the story of God's redemption is the story of God righting all the wrongs in history and putting everything the way it's supposed to be. See, sin has ruined, has not, not that sin has ruined the story, but sin has made the world that God created sit under his judgment. And in order for God to put everything right, 
in order for him to complete the story, in order for him to stay happily ever after, at the end, God has to judge sin. The problem is, is that if God opens the scroll of his judgment and judges sin and judges evil, he's going to have to judge you and he's going to have to judge me and we will not survive that judgment. We will be destroyed under his judgment. And this is what leads John to weep because he pictures that, that God's end to history is not the, the redemption of everything. He thinks that the end of his history is going to be the actual destruction of everything because everything sits under the judgment of God. And so he weeps and he weeps and he weeps. How is God going to deal with the judgment? And notice what the angel says in verse 2. Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? See, the issue here is not just of someone having the power and ability to break the scroll and, and unfold the story. No, do they have the character? And so John looks and he, he thinks everything has been lost and he's crying out. But then the angel tells him, don't cry. The elder says to me, sorry, not the angel, the elder says to him, do not weep. He says, see, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And so John is, is excited to hear that, that there is this lion, this symbol of power, that has the strength to open this seal and complete the story in a way that, that leads to a happy ending. You know, the lion, right? The, the, the power beast. It's, that's why countries use it as a symbol, right? You've got the three lions of England, you've got the, the, the lion of the Netherlands. Almost every African country seems to choose lions as its symbol, maybe because they know a lot more about lions than the rest of us. It's a symbol of power. It's a symbol of strength. And John, he looks at this throne. He, he turns and he expects to see it. So, so picture the scene, right? John is, is his head's down. He's bawling his eyes out. You know, you know when, you get, when you cry a lot and you can't really see anything anymore because your, your eyes are all puffy and stuff? This is how John is. And the elder says, puts his hand on him and says, stop weeping. Look, the lion is going to save him. You get this jolt of hope. And John looks up and he hopes to see or he expects to see this, this lion sitting on the throne. Think of if you've ever seen or read the Chronicles of Narnia, you know, Aslan, this big, strong beast. And what does he see instead? It says he sees a lamb. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. So he looks up and he sees this lamb. He sees this tiny, little, fluffy, little... Bah. That was a very good ba. Just this, this, the weakest of animals. And actually the weakest of the weakest, right? Sheep are kind of the weakest, dumbest animals out there. And, and this is a lamb. This is a, a baby one of the weakest, dumbest animals out there and on top of that it looked like it had been killed it looked like it was dead there's blood all over it but then it says that the lamb stood at the throne this is a living lamb that looked like it's dead and of course you know who john's talking about right what did John say when he saw Jesus walk by him in John chapter 3? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
John sees Jesus, the resurrected lamb, who takes the scroll, and, and he alone, therefore, is worthy. He's the only one who's been found who is worthy to take the scroll. He fulfills the obligations. Why? Because he's a slain lamb. Because he was dead and he rose again. Because the gospel is that Jesus lived the life that you should have lived, and he died the death that you should have died. Jesus perfectly obeyed his father, never committing a single sin, loved him, like we said earlier, with all of his heart, all of his mind, all of his strength. And then he went to the cross and he was slain. He was killed for your sins and my sins. Our transgressions were placed upon him as he died on that cross, as he experienced the very judgment that John was anticipating you and I were going to face and was causing him to weep uncontrollably. Jesus experienced that. Now, understand the implications for the original audience for a second. This is huge. Here's this audience. Here's this first century church. And their whole problem is they're weak. They're being oppressed. They're being persecuted. They're being humiliated. They're being marginalized. They're suffering. They're feeling utterly defeated. And John peels back the, the, the book of history, so to speak. And he says there's a reality behind the reality you experience. And that is this. Jesus Christ, through weakness, conquered. You see, even in your weakness, even in your oppression, even in your humiliation, even against all the things that you think are wrong, and maybe you're a person who thinks that, that the government is overstepping its bounds, and we have freedoms that are being attacked, and we need to stand up for them, and the church looks so weak because we're not, you know, standing up and, and, and railing against what the government is doing to us. Maybe you're the kind of person who thinks, you know, the government's too weak because they're not putting enough restrictions on, and the church should be standing up and, and, and calling for more restrictions. I don't really care the position that you have. The issue is this. You think that the church is weak, and you're right. But when we are weak, we are strong. Through our weakness, through our ineffectiveness, through our, our powerlessness, even right now, in the face of an uncertain future, even right now, God is accomplishing his purposes in history through us. These people were being rounded up en masse and thrown into jail. We think our rights maybe are being, are being uh, uh, curtailed a little bit. We don't have a clue what it means to have rights curtailed a little bit. These people were being thrown into prison en masse, and they were crying out to God and saying, where are you? We need you. Look at us. We're being utterly defeated. We're being utterly crushed. We're being utterly destroyed. And Jesus and John shows them a vision where God says, look, even through that, you have no idea what I'm really doing and what's really going on. reigning over all things and I am accomplishing my plan and through your defeat you will one day conquer 
And he's saying to them, yeah, you're going to suffer, yeah. You're going to suffer, but don't be fooled. Don't be fooled, because through your suffering, you even will be victorious. Because Jesus, the lamb who was slain, holds the scroll. Don't ever forget that. Who's in charge here? Jesus says, I am. The last thing. The end of history. Yeah, um, the world is unstable. The world is facing unrest. The world is dealing with tension, stress, conflict. Even families are right now. And churches are. Friends are. They're polarized over what's going on in the world around us right now. People just are mad. You just get that sense. People walking around mad. Look at verse 13. This is what blows my mind. Every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them are saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Every creature, everywhere, doing what? Looking at Jesus. Looking at Jesus and worshiping him. All creation is in perfect harmony. It is in perfect unity. There is no more discord. There is no more tension. Everyone is lost in wonder, love, and praise. That's where we're going. That's where we're going. We're not there yet, but when you know the end of the story and you know you have a role to play in it, what's your response going to be? Play your role. May the church, may us at Grace Valley, as we deal with all these differences together and as we try to connect with our community, etc. May we be committed to playing our part in the story, which is what? Bringing about the unity, bringing about the harmony, bringing about the, the common commitment to the story that we know is true, that we know will end this way. Why would we fight against the ending when we know it's inevitable? All right. Let me, uh, let me end with a really cool illustration. Now, I'm going to ruin a movie with this illustration, but it's from 1993. If you haven't seen it yet, I have no, no remorse over spoiling it for you, Okay. One of my favorite movies ever. It's a movie called Searching for Bobby Fischer. And it's about a boy who is a chess prodigy. 11-year-old boy or something like that. He's like super good at chess. But he's really, like, he lacks confidence. He's really timid. He's really afraid. Doesn't know how to compete well and all that kind of stuff. Because believe it or not, chess is a lot like other competitive things. You kind of got to have an edge to you to be really good. Just like in sports. Anyways, 
At the end of this movie, he walks into the final match of a big tournament, and he's playing like the guy, right? The, the kid, the champ, who's super good and super confident, kind of arrogant, kind of mean looking, right? He's totally the stereotype to make you not really like him that much. And he sits down and he starts playing this kid, and they're going back and forth, and they're going back and forth, and then the kid does something against him, takes one of his pieces and slams it on the table and hits the little ticker thing for the timer and then just stares at him like dead-eyed. And he's like, Ugh. he's totally scared, totally freaked out. He's like, I'm going to lose. And so he starts staring at the board. He's staring at the board and he's staring at the board and he's staring at the board and he's staring at the board. I'm totally drawing this out, I know, but I'm, I love it. It's like one of my favorites, right? So, and then he looks up and his demeanor changes and he's not scared anymore. He's not freaked out. And he puts his hand across the table and he says to the other kid, good game. And that guy looks at him like, and everybody's like, what you doing? What you doing? Right? And then the, the master, his coach, his parents, the boy's parents, ask the master, what's he doing? And he says, he's offering him a draw. And it's like, what do you mean he's offering him a draw? He's losing. You look at the board, he looks like he's losing, but he offered the other kid a draw, and he said, good game, and he offered to split the prize money, and they could both be champions together. And the, the other kid is looking at him like he's crazy, and, and the father says to the coach, why would he do something like that? And he says, because he's won. It's like, what do you mean? You get this. This is how, if you're good at chess, apparently you can do this. He's like, it's 12 moves away, but it's there. So 12 moves from where they're at, this boy is going to beat the champ. And the champ can't see it. And none of the people can see it because they're all parents, not chess prodigies. The only people who can see it are the master and the timid kid whose demeanor has completely changed. Why? Because he now knows he's going to win. And of course, the champ slaps the hand away. Play, right? And then it's like, boom, 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 and then the king gets knocked out. And he's the champ. Really awesome. It's so good. It's so good. Now, what in the world does that have to do with you? You're that kid. I'm that kid. We're that kid. We know how the game ends. So I preach to myself this morning. Yep, still morning. Why are you so anxious? Why are you so worried about what's going to happen? Why are you so freaked out? You know how it's going to end. It ends with your king winning and with you in his presence celebrating that win forever and ever and ever. Ah, you're the crowd that goes wild. Let's pray. Father, thank you that Jesus is the king that he is on the throne, that he will win. And thank you. Thank you that we get to 
live not only that, live in that not only at the in the end, but we get to live in that now. Give us the confidence to live in that. We pray. Give us the poise and the calm and the peace. In Jesus' name. Not only do we preach to ourselves, 